it was intended to be a cautionary tale about the misuse of technology and the weaponization of technology and and the fact that Skynet is this sort of ultimate AI construct. We were just on the very, very, very beginning conceptually of of what is becoming very real today. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. It's the final episode of Script Apart Season 1, so we figured who better to help us say hasta la vista than Bill Wisher, co-writer at the incredible Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Released 30 years ago this summer, the film was the most expensive blockbuster in Hollywood history at the time. The 1984 original had been a sleeper hit. Written and directed by James Cameron, The Terminator was a lean sci-fi slasher movie in which the unstoppable killer was not a Freddy or Jason monster, but a machine. The T-800, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, in a role that catapulted the Austrian to superstardom. Writing a sequel was a daunting task for James. How could he unleash upon audiences a follow-up that retained the surprise and innovation of the first movie? To help answer this question, James turned to an old friend. Bill used to make DIY movies with James back home in Brea, California. He was an emerging screenwriter at the time with some Hollywood experience, but nothing of this size or magnitude. Bill and James got to work right away. They had a lot of big ideas, but not a lot of time to turn them into a functioning screenplay. They knew they had to bring back Arnold, despite the exoskeletal assassin he played in the first film dying in that movie's final moments. The challenge of bringing back the character in an organic, meaningful way was one problem. Getting Arnie to agree to the daring creative solution they came up with, they feared, might be another. Working on T2 was a frenzied, intense experience for Bill, but one that was well worth it. The movie took no time at all to become regarded an action classic, grossing over $520 million worldwide and introducing the world to more than one iconic catchphrase. Key to its success was the way Judgment Day added heart to the horror of the first movie, turning the 1984 original on its head by making the T-800 a good guy and giving him a tender relationship with future leader of the resistance, John Connor. I spoke to Bill from his home in California to hear how the foundations for Terminator 2 were laid out across six years worth of racquetball games with James. We also delve into the creation of the villainous T-1000, discuss Bill's blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo in T2, and get into the ways in which the themes at the heart of Terminator 2 are more relevant today than ever. As I mentioned, this is the last episode of Season 1 of Script Apart. Don't worry, we have not been terminated. We're just going to be taking a small break for a while. We have big plans for the rest of 2021, so stay tuned to our social media channels. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. That really does help the show get out there. And if you've enjoyed these first 20 episodes, please consider supporting the great causes we've been raising money for this season. You can donate to our fundraiser for the NHS Charities COVID-19 Appeal, the film and TV charity, and Black Minds Matter UK by visiting scriptapart.com. We're already hard at work on season two, which we're excited to bring you very soon. As Arnie might say, we'll be back. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey Bill, how's it going today? I'm very well, thank you, and it's good to be here. Great. Well, 
It's kind of hard, honestly, to know where to begin with this incredible film, which celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. For most screenwriters, it would be emotional enough being able to reflect back on creating such an enduring and much-loved movie. The fact that you were able to achieve that working alongside an old friend, someone who you used to fool around making DIY movies with back in Brea, that must just add to the emotion, right? You and James, you went from teenagers dreaming of making movies to creators of what was, at the time, the biggest blockbuster ever. Let's start there. What was it like to experience that, Bill? Well, let me tell you how it began. Well, first of all, I should say, Jim and I met when, I think he's about, not quite a year older than me, six months or something, but but was born the previous calendar year. So we met when I was still a senior in high school. He had just gotten out of high school in Canada and moved down and... Uh, uh, Bray is a very small town, and I knew his uh, uh, Sharon uh, Williams, who became his first wife. And uh, she said, "Oh, you should meet my boyfriend. You know, he likes movies and science fiction and all that stuff." So, in in this town with a very small population, we were the only two guys who pretty much cared about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then we lived together for a while out in what we what we refer to here in L.A. as the Valley. So we've just been friends for oh God, it makes breaks my heart to say this, almost half a century now. Yeah, we did a cut. We did this DIY thing. I helped him with the, the first Terminator, the Terminator. He had written a treatment and gave me uh, eight, nine scenes to, to write for him. And I have a teeny tiny credit at the end of that film. And then seven years went by and we had talked about doing other things. You know, and He called me up one day and said, uh, I have some good news and some bad news. And I said, all right, give me the bad news first. And he goes, uh, okay, you know that thing that we were going to, I can't remember what it was now, but you know, the thing we were going to do? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, we're not going to do that. And I said, oh, okay, what's the good news? He goes, Mario Casar and Andy Vanya have gathered together the rights from the Terminator, and we have to make uh, Terminator 2. And we, sh- and we need to do it together. Bad news on the good news is we're already behind schedule. <laughs> it's like, so how... How quickly can you get over here? And I said, I'll drive over there right now. This was 1990. And the process began. We, we wrote it in six and a half weeks. Between Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, about, I don't know, something like seven years had passed. And we used to play racquetball all the time, me and Jim. And like I said, we had an apartment together for a year or two. And so on occasion, we talk about, you know, what ifs. You know, what if there was ever a T2? Um, what could it be? And um, we got a lot of the bad ideas out of the way over that you know, six years. So when it came down to um, drive over, we have to sit down and start talking about this. Um, we didn't really know what it was going to be, but we had enough time to talk about, geez, what, what might have happened to Sarah in those intervening years? You know, what might this have happened? And what about that? And so forth and so on. Because of that, it came together rather quickly. This woman who's running around talking about robots from the future, you know, and Skynet and all of that stuff, and wanting to teach John Connor, who she knows has to be the leader of the resistance in the future. So it's like, well, what would she do? She'd probably be running around with survivalists, and she'd be doing this, and she'd be doing that. And she'd probably be in jail in a mental institution. You run around saying stuff like that, and people think you're crazy. So a lot of those things happen pretty quickly. You know, those decisions. Yeah, it came together amazingly quickly. When we talk about you guys co-writing, what did that look like in actuality? Like, 
How did you divide and conquer to get this thing done in quite a short amount of time? We would sit down in the same room, just take turns typing at the keyboard. One night we heard coyotes hunting an animal and we'd almost always work well into the night. And we paused and this little room had like a little balcony and it was black, pitch black, but we could hear them hunting it, triangulating. I don't know. It was something about that that was just kind of like, there's a hunt going on down there. It's so primal, you know, and we paused and just listened to it until it was over and, uh, and then went back to work. He typed for a while and I typed for a while. And what, what we did was we, we were writing, a lot of people call these things treatments, which is sort of the short story version of a screenplay. Jim said, look, we should just um, expand it, keep expanding it. And so I think he coined the phrase scriptment, which just means you don't have separate documents. You just keep expanding on it until, you, yeah. until it's a screenplay. And so we would get ideas and drop them in here and drop them in there and, and so forth and so on. And, and um, uh, it took us, I don't know, maybe three weeks or a month uh, to get that finished front, front to back. And I, th- I, th- I think it ran about 50 pages. Okay. And um, we would have arguments. You know, uh, I got to win some, which was great. <laughs> Since he was, he was directing, you know, uh, and, um, but we had so much fun. It was just really a lot of fun to do that, that project. And then when we finished, uh, uh, the, the script, the scriptment, the 50 page thing, um, we cut it in half. Okay. And, um, I went off and I can't remember which half I took. You might know it might be somewhere out there. Um, but, uh, uh, let's say I took the first half and he took the second half and then we took, uh, I don't know, 10 days or something and fleshed all that out into screenplay form. Then we got back together. We did that separately. And then we got back together and kind of glued the two halves together. And then the two of us, uh, kind of went over it and rewrote it together, uh, and polished it up, uh, uh, over, over the next you know, maybe week or so, and we were done. There are so many shots in T2, Bill, that really pushed the boundaries of what was possible with CGI at that time. As you guys were in that writing process, and all these incredibly forward-thinking ideas for visuals and stunts were, were kind of pouring out of you, were you stopping at all to worry about how much of it was going to be executable for James as the guy directing it? Because, yeah, as I say you really were testing the limits of the technology at the time. During the process of, of doing this, ILM uh, chiefly did the special effects. So we would come up with an idea. And a- as an example, um, there's a scene with a, like a black and white linoleum floor in the mental facility that, uh, that Sarah Connor's in. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then, and then there's a security guard, and then the floor kind of morphs up into... Uh, second security guard, uh, an identical twin. So we would, we would do things like, um, we go, uh, I don't know if they can do that. So we'd, we'd hop on the phone with ILM. Okay, here's what we want to do, right? And describe the, the thing to them. And they go, whoever was on the other end. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and uh, all right, it's going in the script. Okay. So uh, uh, and I used, to, I used to joke with Jim. It's like, 
I'll bet you the guy, you know, he hangs the phone up and he goes, what did I just say we could do? I have no idea how we're going to do that. Um, but they, they came through uh, for us every single time. You know, there was never a thing they said, not, not, can't do that. Um, and uh, so they, they uh, actually, I think, helped them um, uh, invent new kinds of uh, ways of doing special effects, you know, uh, themselves. So we gave them a lot of tasks. Uh, to come up with and uh, and and they pulled through every time yeah it certainly shows in the movie I've got to loop back to something you said a few moments ago Bill you mentioned that over the course of six years over the course of all these racquetball games you guys had tossed around so many bad ideas for what this movie could be I I, I, I call them that you know uh, <laughs> but but go ahead what were some of those ideas? Do you recall what any of those? I abandoned? knew you were going to ask me that, and I, <laughs> I can't, I can't remember any of them. We're talking about you know thirty three, thirty four mm. years ago, and and just tossing off, you know, oh hey, what if? And it's like ah, that sucks. We would never do that. And um, uh, uh, so so uh, the the more important thing was the good ideas we came up with. Mm. You know, kind of like where would Sarah be? And we kind of went, yeah, she'd, she'd be in a nut house, you know. And um, uh, what kind of life would that give, say, a 12-year-old? I mean, we pushed the time frame a little bit, cheated a little bit, because really only six years had passed between the first and second film. But he was about, uh, I think he was about 10, 11, 12 maybe, you know, supposed to be. And, uh, you know, so he's a young hooligan. You know, he's, he's probably been passed around from, you know, one foster home to another and, you know, stuff like that. So we actually also came up with some good ideas, but they might have been unconnected or disconnected from from a whole narrative. But it'd be like, oh, yeah, that's probably what would happen to him. That's probably mm -hmm. what would happen to her. So that when we sat down to say, okay, now it's real, you know, we, we, we'd already had some of these things in our heads. The movie you ended up with, Bill, I mean, it's gone down in history as one of the all-time great action movies, one of the all-time great sci-fi films, but it's also kind of a family drama as well, isn't it? John, Sarah, and the Terminator, they kind of form this unlikely family unit, and they go on this strange family road trip together. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think if it was just an action film, it, it, would, it, it wouldn't have mattered. I always referred to the, the, the three of them, especially in that road trip sequence you're talking about as a fractured family mm. you know very dysfunctional fractured family and um um uh, one, one of the things that i really loved was how um uh, arnold becomes uh slightly more human and sarah tries to turn herself into an emotionless terminator you know, yeah. and she wants to, to kill Dyson. I just thought, oh, that's nice. You know, I mean, that, that's it. The bi I'll tell you what the biggest thing was. And, and um, we knew it was a good idea, but it terrified us at the time. Which was, uh, you know, one of the early conversations we had, Jim said, look, um, there's got to be a reason to make a sequel. And it can't be money. Because you can always write something, make something, and it'll make money. So yeah. why do we care? What could we do? that will make this worth making. And uh, very quickly, we, we came upon the idea, of, what if we flipped the Terminator 
and make him a good guy. So then, you know, it occurred to us, gosh, is, is that brilliant or really, 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 really stupid? Because, <laughs> because by, by that time, um, Arnold as the Terminator had made several lists of best villains of all time and mm. all of that stuff. And we were about to undo all that. And, um, uh, you know, it's one of those deals where in your gut, which is the only thing you can really go by, um, in, in your gut, if it just feels like, no, that's a really good idea, uh, even if it's kind of scary, um, uh, we should do it. And I remember um, we had to get Arnold on the phone uh, because, because, you know, he, he knew we were doing T2, didn't know what it was. Um, and, and, uh, so we had to call him up and say, Hey, listen, uh, uh, Arnold, um, here's the big idea we have, you know, you're the good guy. And there was just like long pause. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he was thinking. Probably like you, you guys are crazy, you know? And, um, uh, but he, he, he trusted us enough and we said, no, it'll be cool because of, you know, you're going to show up as a bad guy. I, I, no, no, I, I take that back. You're going you're gonna to show up as a good guy, but then we're also going to have you start learning stuff. And, you know, so you're the one that John Connor sends back to himself you know, to protect himself, you know. And uh, he said, okay, I trust you. Just make it cool. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, I promise you'll be cool. And um, he actually was much cooler in T2, we got the idea to put him into biker leathers, you know, um, mm. pr- this right after he arrives. And if you look back at Terminator 1, he's wearing, you know, I don't know, the costuming wasn't that fantastic, you know. And, and but man, you put Arnold in those leathers and uh, with the sunglasses and the, and the whole bit. And all of a sudden, yeah, he's pretty sexy, honestly, you know, as, as, a, as this... Uh, 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 larger than life force. And I thought he looked incredibly cool in T2, mm. you know, and, uh, he also bulked down. I had a conversation with him on set one day. I hadn't seen him in some time and he, he just looked terrific. And he said, I lost 42 pounds. I've bulked down. I wanted to look a little more, you know, uh, uh ripped and less bulky, mm. you know, and I said, ah, well, whatever you did, man, you look fantastic. So. He certainly did. And it, it's interesting, as you say, The Terminator was a very different film. And it, it was almost like a slasher movie in sci-fi clothing to an extent. And I, I don't think many people went into its sequel in 1991 expecting to be moved to tears. But that's what happened for a lot of audiences. Can you remember the moment in the creative process where it dawned on you guys that, wow, there are actually really powerful emotional possibilities for this story. I think right towards the very beginning, um, kind of starting with uh, Linda um, in a mental institution, the kid running amok on the streets, and um, it, you, you, we just knew we had to bring all three of those people together and that we would be creating this like really weird fractured family, Mm. so to speak. And then there there was a a very important thing. Now, Jim cut it out of the first movie 
And um, I, I remember not being pleased by that. Um, but it's it, you can see it now because I don't know how many versions have been released on DVD and every other place. But um, there was a scene I really wanted to have, um, and it's when they spend the night in that abandoned gas station auto repair place, you know. Um, and uh, uh, there was this whole bit about how, uh, and as I recall, it was uh, it was uh, young John Connor's idea that um, they're going to remove his uh, CPU, you know, his his main uh, chip uh, from the back of his head, and um, and switch it from uh, read to write. Now, no one really uses those terms these days, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, the idea being that that um, we were going to just be able to change it from the the program he arrived with that was you know preset in there, and by turning it to write, that would mean he could learn. And um, Sarah almost smashes it. They, they take it out and sets it down on the table. Connor does, young John Connor, and he goes to click the little switch and then she's got this mallet or hammer or something she's picked up and she wants to smash it and basically kill him, you know? And, um, he puts his hand over it and he says, he says, ma, if I'm going to be the leader of the free world, you're going to have to start trusting me once in a while. And she reluctantly says, okay. (laughs) And he puts it back in his head and Arnold goes, you know, well, that took a lot longer than, (laughs) It should have. Is there? Did something happen? You know, some something along those lines. And they're like, no, no, no. I think it's fine. <laughs> and uh, so what Jim did, uh, because we wanted to keep that concept, I think he was just trying to trim for time. Is um, you know, we found a you know a, a, a B camera shot of maybe the back of Arnold's head, and he says, uh, and they're discussing this about learning. He says, well, the longer I stay here, the the more I learn. And uh, so we kept the concept, but I really missed that scene for a variety of reasons. It's John Connor standing up to his mom. It's all kinds of things. I thought that was a very important scene. You mentioned earlier that there were scenes and moments in the story that you guys butted heads over, some arguments you won, some you lost. Was there anything that you you petitioned to put in the film that you lost that argument? It's so hard to remember. You have to understand, you're sitting there next to each other going back and forth and back and forth. It might have been a line of dialogue here. It might have been, mm. a, oh, do this shot there. And it's like, well, what if we did this? No. And, and people have asked me, you know, you know, well, who wrote what? And I go, I don't know. I can't, <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, often we would modify. Jim would come up with a thing and I'd say, oh, 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 that's good. What if we did spun it this way? And he'd go, oh, I like that, you know. And then sometimes he'd say, no, 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 no. I like it better the way. I didn't know I'd have an idea and he'd spin off on it. And go, Oh, I, that's great. What if we did added this to it and that to it? And so you get to a point when you're collaborating like that to, to bifurcate ideas and say, well, this one was mine and that one was his. And it, it, the process didn't work like that. It was too fluid. Mm. And I, and I, I honestly don't recall. I just know that there, there were a couple of things. There's something that's so funny. Um, uh, here's one I lost and ultimately won. <laughs> <laughs> so when Arnold comes out of the biker bar, 
okay? And he walks in naked and he comes out dressed, right? And throws the guy on the griddle and takes his clothes and all that kind of stuff. And he walks out and I said, okay, we should do this um, shot where it's just boot, boot, you know, steps out on the porch. And then you kind of, you know, pan up or crane up and you see Arnold and he's in, he's in all his clothes. And I said to Jim, oh, we, we need to put a music cue in here. And he goes, what? And I go, bad to the bone. So that when those boots step <laughs> out, right? When those boots step out, it's like, na-da-da-da-da. You know, that, that, that kind of, you know, just the opening of the song. And, um, and I go, and we go all the way up and we reveal him in the costume. I remember Jim sitting there thinking, like he's considering it. And he goes, nah, it's too on the nose. I said, oh, come on, man. That's really cool. Okay. So we spent about you know, a minute going back and forth. And he said, he said, no. Okay. Let's move on. And I went, so we kept the shot and everything, but the music cue, you know, like, forget, no, 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 no. So cut to like a year later, I'm walking into edit, just checking in, you know, and he, he grabs me, he goes, oh, come here, come here, come here. You, you, you got to watch this. And it's that scene. And the two boots step out. And the intro to Bad to the Bone starts playing. He goes, I just got this idea like, I don't know, two days ago. I said, no, you didn't. I told you that a year ago. And he said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, you did. And he goes, no, 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 no. I just started up. And, and at that point, I kind of went, <laughs> it was a part of my brain that went, you won the argument. Shut the F up. You know, uh, it's in the movie. <laughs> so let him think he just thought of it. But, you know, that's fine by me. And um, so, you know, there were a few little things like that, but uh, we didn't really argue much. You know, it's just like when you're kicking ideas around, um, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, there's a back and forth, you know, mm -hmm. but mostly, we were, mostly we were building on each other's ideas as opposed to knocking them down. It's so funny you should mention that initial scene with Arnold. The last time I saw a screening of T2 back in the wonderful days when we could go to the cinema still, some of the really fun comedic beats in that scene in the biker bar had the place just erupting in laughter. We talked a moment ago, Bill, about the very difficult job that you and James had to do, essentially reprogramming the audience who, who had seen T1 a couple of years earlier and been terrified by the Terminator. In this one sequence, you had to communicate for this new film that this character was no longer one to be feared, but one to root for. So yeah, I wanted to ask if comedy beats like that, like the ones that are littered around this biker bar scene, were put in for that exact purpose, to kind of endear the character to the audience and, and recalibrate him, I suppose, in, in viewers' heads a little bit. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and that was one of the... Uh, we were always looking to make Arnold likable. And we also wanted to take um, uh, some of the piss out of it, you know, in a way, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of, of him as, the, as the, the killing machine. And so we came up with, the, you know, it's like young John Connor goes, you can't kill anybody. Okay, that's rule number one. Mm -hmm. And he says, but I'm a Terminator. <laughs> it's, it's like what I do. <laughs> he says, well, okay, but the rules have changed. I'm not, you can't kill anybody. And there's a scene in a parking lot at night shortly after Arnold and John Connor are, are united. The kid finally figures out, he says, well, you have to do anything I say, right? 
And he says, well, yeah. And he goes, stand on one leg. And so Arnold does. Yeah, he lifts up one leg and he's standing there perfectly still. And the kid's like, cool, I got my own private <laughs> Terminator, you know? And, and uh, so we, we, we intentionally added stuff like that to make him, um, not, I wouldn't say funny so much, but, but to, to make you warm to him, you know, and, and realize, okay, this is not the, the guy from the first movie. I mean, first of all, literally, it's not the guy from the first movie, you know, it's, <laughs> it's another Terminator, but we're, we're playing him, we're playing him differently. And, um, uh, you know, there are other comedy bits, like, like when they, they go to break into, uh, what do they break into? Maybe it's Cyberdyne. Um, or maybe it's to go rescue uh, Sarah. It's been a while since I've seen it. And there are security guards at a gate. And they don't want to let them in. So Arnold takes his forty-five out and he goes, pop, pop. Shoots them both in the leg and they fall down. And he, anticipating the kid's going to yell at him, he says, they'll live. You know? <laughs> like, I didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah. And he's, you know, okay. And, and in they go. So, you know, yeah, we added stuff like that. We were very aware of trying to make, make it, um, uh, make him much more likable, make him a good, uh, you know, a cool, but much more likable character. Those comedic flourishes, I guess, are all the more important because this is a movie that so easily could have been overwhelmed by its own sense of apocalypse. So to dive into the script a little bit, Bill, we begin in downtown LA, noon on a hot summer day. On an extreme long lens, the lunchtime crowd stacks up into a wall of humanity. In slow motion, they move in herds among the glittering rows of cars jammed bumper to bumper. Heat ripples distort the torrent of faces. The image is surreal, dreamy, and like a dream, it begins to very slowly dissolve to an exterior shot of city ruins at night. Same spot as the last shot, but now it's a landscape in hell. The skyline of buildings beyond has been shattered by some unimaginable force, like a row of kicked-down sandcastles. So we get the same intercutting playground shots, the same chilling voiceover that we see in the final movie, and that same nightmarish reveal of what you describe as a metal foot crushing a skull like China. We're getting a glimpse into the future that our heroes will spend the movie trying to prevent from happening. It's such an incredible opening. Is it true that this opening sequence alone costs more than the entire first movie? That is true. I mean, maybe not to the penny, but the first film cost, as I recall, uh, six to six and a half million dollars, something like that. Uh, they gave us a hundred. <laughs> and um, so the opening sequence you know uh yeah roughly cost about six million to shoot uh so it was bigger you know we were able to you know put in all kinds of stuff that uh, but that but anyway that's that's not a myth that's true in the next scene after the biker moment that we've discussed we meet the t-1000 who travels back in time arrives in our present and creeps up on a patrolling police officer you describe him as nothing special certainly not built like a terminator his features are handsome, bordering on severe. His eyes are grey ice, penetrating, intelligent. The cop spins at a sound. Too late. Mr. X, as you call him here, is already on him. The blow is lightning fast and the cop drops like a bag of sand. This is really interesting. This character, um, it must have been really difficult when you approached the project 
knowing that you needed, if you're going to make Arnie the protagonist this time, or one of the heroes, creating an antagonist that's even scarier than the Terminator in the first film, that must have felt like a daunting task. Can you tell me how you guys kind of landed on the T-1000 and what some of the discussions were that led to his creation? Well, um, actually, that's a bit of a throwback to T-1. So, you know, Jim came back. I'm, we have to go back in time now for this to make some sense. So he, he had been making, um, I don't know, or editing Piranha 2, The Spawning or whatever it was called, uh, that he only got to half direct and he was trying to recut it uh, at night, break in and recut what they were doing during the day anyway. So he was off in Italy doing that. He came back, um, uh, not pleased, and uh, he said he had this nightmare. I remember, you know, we was hanging out talking of this uh, Terminator ectoskeleton, you know, walking out of the fire. And um, we're talking about pre-T1 now, before he'd mm -hmm. even written the treatment for that. And the whole concept of the Terminator was supposed to be um, a very sort of unassuming or, or, you know, visually just so very normal looking guy because he's an infiltration unit, for goodness sake, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 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 that changed once Arnold got hired. And I remember we were, we were still living um, on White Oak Avenue out in the valley. And uh, uh, I get up, I'm drinking my coffee, and he says, uh, I got a meeting today with Arnold. They want Arnold to play Kyle Reese. Um, and uh, so I have to go. I can't say no because, you know, he didn't have any power in those days. He says, I can't say no. So the only, only strategy I can think of is I have to go meet Arnold, you know, having lunch or breakfast or something. And uh, he said, I have, to, I have to really be an asshole and make him not like me so he'll turn the film down. Uh, and, and he goes, so I'll probably die. Um, you can have, you know, the Formica table set and the TV, you, you know, jokingly. And, and I said, well, you know, ho hope, you, hope you make it back. Um, and um, so he, he got there. Oh, well, he got there, and the, and the first I wasn't present, so I, he just told me this when he got home. He, he got there, and Arnold said, um, first thing he said was, "I don't want to play Kyle Reese. I want to play the Terminator." And and Jim, you know, his hard drive spins pretty fast, mm -hmm. so he's like, "Well, that would, you know, in his head that I can make that work." And so instead of uh, making Arnold, you know, not want to be in the movie, he immediately went like, I love that. Now, Jim was right. He's almost always right. Um, but it, it literally made no sense. Why would a six foot two inch Austrian bodybuilder be an infiltration unit, you know? Uh, and we just kind of went like, it doesn't matter. You know, his presence is going to be so menacing that uh, that uh, 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 people will buy it, okay? So, so then that's how Arnold became the Terminator. 
He didn't want to be the hero. He wanted to be the bad guy. So now we get to Terminator 2, and it's like th there were two thoughts we had. Um, if Arnold, as the T-700, uh, uh, is the ultimate in hard uh, tech and, and uh, you know, sort of uh, hard to kill, you know, kind of warrior character, um, having two Arnolds, um, oh, th yeah, that was one of the bad ideas we dismissed immediately. I remember playing, playing, well, you know, we could always have another Arnold. Nah, that's stupid. We both went, yeah, that's stupid. And I mean, it was years in between. Um, so it's like, okay, well, what's, what's the yin and yang of it? Mm -hmm. So if, if Arnold's the ultimate hard thing, then, um, and that's how we kind of came up with the concept of, of, um, uh, the, 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 the soft tech, which is what the T-1000 is, right? Right, yeah. And he can morph into anything and so forth and so on. I mean, there were certain rules we had. He couldn't morph into a semi-trailer tractor because, you know, he, we would have to, we, you know, we talked about mass and, and all of that kind of stuff and weights. But he could turn himself into a variety of things that were relatively his size. And, um, so we went, oh, that's cool. So it's soft versus hard. Okay. And then we went back to the thing of, well, let's just make him look like an everyman, which was, you know, sort of the very first thought that Jim had had uh, for, for the original Terminator. And it's like, let's go back to that, you know. Um, but we're, we're going we're gonna to change it around so that he's, he's this, you know, morphing kind of thing. But he looks like, like anybody and uh so it was great because it's oh yeah we always should yeah it's a shame that that never kind but not a shame because arnold was great as the terminator but it's like let's let's use that let's do that mm. and it's also the opposite of a six foot two inch you know bavarian uh, uh bodybuilder you know so so everything it all just kind of made immediate sense that uh let's make him a real infiltration unit and um, um, and we decided to put him in a cop's uniform because um, makes him an authority figure. He can kind of go anywhere, anywhere he wants. No one's going to question him, you know. Um, and uh, uh, that all made immediate sense. So yeah, let's make him a cop. It makes sense narratively to make him a cop. He's able to use the radio comms to to track Sarah and the gang for one. There's also nice dramatic irony, I suppose. There's one shot in the film where James really lets his camera linger on the words on his cop car to protect and to serve. The T-1000, of course, is not here to do either of those things in the slightest. Was there anything you wanted to explore thematically, though, in making him a cop? Because at the time, most police on screen were these noble crusaders for justice. Was there anything you were trying to say with that creative choice? You, you could ask Jim. I don't remember having any of those conversations. It's like, you know, overthinking it, kind of. Um, I'm not saying that you are. I mean, for us to have uh, done that, um, it might have been in Jim's head. I don't remember discussing it at all. It's just like, if we make him a cop, then it's, it, it, it I mean, there is the irony, as you pointed out, 
you know, that the side of the door says to protect and to serve. And, and he's really there to, you know, cause murder, mayhem, and bring on, you know, an apocalypse. So, I mean, that's just, I, I find that stuff <laughs> funny. Um, but, but it was really more for practical reasons than anything else, you know. And then out of that decision of practicality could come these moments of irony. You know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. so then you have these, uh, uh, there's also, there's a, there's a, there's a moment when, uh, the T-1000, uh, wags his finger at somebody, you know, which is like something your mom would do, Yeah, you know, and it was like, that's just funny. So that, that goes in, you know, and, um, uh, uh, so, so once we made that decision to make him a cop, then other, other things because of that just naturally kind of came out of it. Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't it be fun if, and, oh, we got to do that because that's just hilarious, you know? Yeah. Uh, at least, at least to us. <laughs> <laughs> we then meet John Connor, who is 10 years old and busy reassembling the carburetor on his Honda dirt bike. He has ripped Levi's and long stringy hair his eyes reveal an intelligence as sharp as a scalpel. Now, we spoke earlier about this film being a family drama as well as an action flick, but on top of that, it's also this incredible child fantasy because what 10-year-old boy wouldn't want their own robot best friend? Um, I think that, that that's like a line out of the movie pretty much where he yeah. says, you know, my own personal Terminator, how cool. <laughs> you know, yeah, who wouldn't want that? I mean, it's, it's a boy's fantasy, but it, it also gave us the opportunity, and I remember being uh, pretty adamant about this. John's sort of a wild hooligan. And then he's given the ultimate weapon that has to do what he says. Okay. And, I, you know, it was like, well, John's got to learn uh, the responsibility of power. Okay. He just can't unleash this thing on, on, you know, on anybody that pisses him off. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, um, and so that's part of his, uh, you know, it's part of his journey of becoming the John Connor he will become in the future is learning, you know, at first it's like, oh, cool. You know, I've got a ray gun that can make, you know, things disappear. Anything I don't like, awesome. And then realizing right away, oh, wait, no, there's a certain responsibility that comes with being able to wield that power. And um, so that was part of, uh, that was something I was personally very interested in. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and of course, his kind of ruptured, ruined relationship with mom when they're first reunited. Now, there's a scene in a car once they get her out i don't know the t-1000 is coming after him and yeah she's shooting and blah 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 and bullets are hitting the car and all that kind of stuff and um kids in the back seat john connor and so once they get out of there she she turns around and puts her hands on him and there's this moment if, if you watch closely where, where where john's thinking like oh am i about to get a hug like the thing he wants the most from his mom in the world. And we realize within a second or so, she's patting him down. Are you damaged? Are you hurt? Kind of a thing. And then, and then he suddenly gets this very resentful look on his face. You know? And what's unspoken is, oh, I, I thought you were going to tell me you love me. 
I mean, it's never said, but it's sort of played that way. And then it's like, just get away from me. Yeah, there's a lot that that plays, seems to play like silently in the script. Yeah. And we did that, you know, on purpose. It it was like, uh, you know, if we can show it and not have anybody say it, that's that's actually more powerful Mm -hmm. because now we're watching a human reaction to a thing. You know, not everything has to be verbalized and often it's better if it isn't. Mm. And speaking of mom, we're reunited with Sarah Connor on page nine. And the same way that you sought to do something quite surprising with Arnold's character, Sarah here, as we've discussed, is not the same person that we met in the first film. You know, re- you see her doing pull-ups on a, yeah. on a, on a bed that she's put, you know, vertical mm. and, and, um, yeah, one of the, one of the things I think Jim had this conversation with her. Um, you know, like A, do you want to be in the movie? Okay, B, since you just said yes, um, you're going to have to. You, you you're not going to be the soft, fluffy haired, you know, waitress from the first one because mm. it, here's what would have happened to you over the years, and and what, so she worked out for months. Now we got her a trainer. I think he was in a. I think he was an Israeli commando, as I recall. And, um, or a former one, maybe. And she just got shredded. She got so ripped up. She looked fantastic, you know. And, um, uh, there's a still that runs around the internet all the time. And it's Sarah sitting at the table cleaning a, like a, an AR 15 or M16 or something. She's got, you know, a tank top on, her hair back in a ponytail. And those sunglasses. And it's, it's like, you know, oh, my heart be still. Part of what's fun about making films and writing them and so forth is you can, you can create um, some of your own fantasies. And it's like, she, I mean, and she's, she's like always in a bad mood and she's cranky and she's kind of crazy and all of it. You know, set that aside. It's like, okay, let's create like the coolest girlfriend you could have. She happens to be a bit mad, but nobody's perfect. And I, 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 I really got a kick out of being able to do that, you know, not just on this film, but in, in other films. You create characters that you'd like to know uh, or, uh, you know, or be like or what have you, you know. And I just, I love that image of, of, uh, of Sarah Connor, you know. And then the whole thing of there is no fate but what you make um ran through both films was really stepped on hard in T2. And it's a thing that Jim and I completely agree on. Um and that that was a very strong theme of the film that they screwed up in a bunch of subsequent sequels, uh, where they kind of let that go. But the whole point of Terminator, uh T one and T two are almost like part one and part two of the same movie in some ways because they're thematically uh, the same. And um, uh, uh, the, Id- the idea of human will uh, conquering, being stronger than any sort of AI or computer or that sort of thing um, uh, was, was central to the whole concept of the film. And I think is the strongest theme that runs through it. Like if you, if you see that movie and you walk away with anything, Please walk away with human will is the strongest thing in the universe. And, and fate is, is 
is is is a thing you decide for yourself. You create your own fate, and uh, that's terribly important part of the movie to me. And one of the biggest drivers of human will is family, the sort of desire to protect and the the people you love, which is why it seems to tie in so well that this is a movie about family. Well, and it all just kind of fit together. I mean, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we were able to do it so quickly. Um, all, also, Jim and I, here's the deal. It, you know, if you were to introduce me to a stranger, I don't care how talented they are, uh, tomorrow, and say so you have six weeks to work with this co-writer and director, um, I don't know if that could be done, or certainly not done as well. But we're talking about, you know, someone by that time that I'd known since 1973, and now it's 1990. And we spent a lot of time together, and we, we grew up in the business together. We kind of, you know, broke in, crowbarred in, you know, at, at the same time. And so we had very common language. So I never had to say, you know, if, if he would say something, I never have to say, oh, well, now wait, now what is that? What do you mean by that? Mm. I knew what he meant by that. And, and vice versa. If I said something, he knew exactly what I meant by that. And so we didn't have to spend any time getting to know each other and kind of going like, well, where are you coming from? And where are you coming from? And all, all of that had happened years and years and years ago. So when we sat down to do it, our, 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 the way we approached stories and all of that was, was already pretty well precinct, precinct up. And, and um, uh, so it, it allowed us to, uh, uh, to, do, to do it that quickly and, um, because we just already had you know, agreed on most things. And, and, and some things you know, you may not anticipate, but just about how the process works. You know, we didn't have to argue about that. We, we, we both had the same approach to the process already, you know, so, so that, that was an important piece of uh, how it happened. And all those themes just worked together. You know, there is no fate, but what you make, which she carves, she carves, I think, no fate into the table before she goes off to That's kill right, Dyson. Yeah. Doesn't do the whole sentence, but, but it appears in the film, you know, several times before that, as I recall. And so you know, you know what it is. He's, oh my God, she's going to go kill him. And of course she gets there and she can't really, you know. And, and that's the moment where she stops pretending she's a Terminator. And, you know, she's still in a bad mood. <laughs> I, I remember we were writing the scene, you know, and, and, you know, once Dyson, I think she wounds him, uh, but when yeah. she walks up and she's, she's, you know, ready to poke around right through his head and she cannot do it because she's human after all. And, mm. and that's when, when she kind of, you know, realizes that and and uh anyway so then they're sitting in the kitchen a few minutes later and uh and dyson is being explained you know all the work you think that you're doing that's for good is really going to be for evil you know and then and then she launches into this uh thing of like you men you can't create anything all you know how to do is destroy and she's a this whole kind of short little monologue where she's just, just you know, I think she's smoking a cigarette, talking. Yeah, you men are bad, and this and that. <laughs> and 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 the kid goes, "Ma, ma, ma, lighten up here, okay? <laughs> it's not helping." <laughs> and uh, 
So, you know, we had all these dynamics kind of playing out, overlapping each other, intertwining with each other. Um, and, and it just, it just worked, I think, wonderfully well, you know, as, as I said at the very beginning of this whole thing, um, I'm very proud of that film. Everything in it worked, you know, and, and there, I, I can't think of a thing or even now I, looking at it, you know, I, 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 there's no moment where I go, Oh, I wish we hadn't done, that. Mm-hmm. you know, it all, it all seemed to work. It's like, wow, that still works. That's great. That's great. And around all these amazing kind of uh, emotional moments and moment of moments of character development, we have these incredible action sequences. We have uh, this scene in the mall where uh, there's a wonderful actor playing a photographer. Just, just, just a, <laughs> <laughs> one of your many Terminator cameos. But there's also, um, you know, and we there's there's two actually. Do I remember you getting slammed in the slammed into a cop car in the first one? Is that right? Yeah, I, I played a cop whose call sign was, is 1L19. I don't think he had a name. I think we just referred to him as 1L19. Mm. And um, uh, 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 and I always thought, I'm not sure what it says in the script, but I, but I always thought uh, that, that, that Arnold kills that guy you know, kind of breaks his neck when he slams him. And I worked with the stunt team and all of that and got padded up and uh, you know, it all went beautifully, but it really looks like he's, he's breaking his neck, and smashing the window. So I'm like, well, that guy's dead. And, um, you know, you cut to like six years later and I get a phone call. I had no intention of being in T2 because I'd been in the intervening years. I mean, the reason I did it in the first one was um, I'd started out uh, as an actor. Mm. and and uh never really got very far and didn't like the business of the business for for actors it's a it's a real rough sure. road yeah and so uh uh so i i decided to turn myself into a writer and in the intervening years i i, I was in abyss he put me in that played a reporter and uh, but you know jim's like well i'll get you a sad card you know and i was like yeah why not you know uh <laughs> handy handy to have I still have it yeah. to this very day. And, um, um, but when T2 came around for, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how the discussion came up, but, but, um, I, I, I was not going to be in it. I said, I really don't want to be in it. Anyway, I'm dead. If it was a whole other movie, <laughs> it, you know, so it would just be weird. Right. Uh, and, uh, he's like, all right. He couldn't talk about it. And, um, so I got a, got a phone call. They're shooting. Uh, that mall is actually two malls. It's uh, Santa Monica Place, the old one uh, mm. th- that existed at that time. They, they completely terraformed it. Um, and then um, I think the Sh- Sherman Oaks Mall or something. Um, and, it, and the two things kind of get spliced together. So it looks like it's one location. So we actually shot the, scene, the little cameo where I, I'm the guy with the camera. Um, in Santa Monica, and I was uh, uh, living nearby, and, and I got a call at night, the night before, and Jim says, um, "I need you on set at six a.m." I'm like, "For what?" He goes, "I want you to play. I want you to play the guy with the camera." Now, in the in, he had gone to Japan. Jim had, um, 
for you know a, a festival or an awards thing or something like that a few years ago, and he made friends with this Japanese guy, and he was supposed to be I think in the script it says uh, Japanese tourist. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, uh, uh, at the last minute, and he was going to put his buddy in it, you know, his friend from Japan. That'll be fun. Um, and the guy, I don't know, he missed his plane. Something went sideways, and he, he couldn't get here. And that's so. Jim calls me up, you know, the night before, and says, "Yeah, I need you on set at six a.m. to do what?" He says, "To play the Japanese tourist." And uh, and he goes, hey, "Don't argue with me." <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, okay. And uh, so, th- I mean, that, that was never in- intended to happen. It just kind of happened at the last minute. And say, I need a body with a camera and it's going to be you. And I, okay. And uh, uh, so I don't have any lines or anything, but, but yeah, I ended up being in it that way. Well, you played the Japanese photographer very well. And yeah, that's in the midst of this incredible sort of mall. I think I actually made a very poor Japanese photographer. <laughs> <laughs> you played a great photographer. Yeah. Tourist <laughs> <laughs> with camera. Yeah. <laughs> that moment is a fun little grace note in an astonishing action sequence in which John is being chased by one Terminator only to run into another Terminator. The T-800 and the T-1000 have this incredible fight sequence in the mall, which eventually gives way to this chase. We're then torpedoed towards this kind of mini prison breakout movie almost in the middle of the film. Sarah Connor is trying to break out of the mental health facility that she's been held in. As that is going on, the T-1000 is converging on her location, as are John and the T-800. Can you tell me a bit about the construction of that scene, which is one of my favourites in the movie? Well, it, it just, it made sense that she'd want to break out mm-hmm. and, and go grab John Connor um, I don't know if we ever said how long she'd been in there. Uh, I don't know if that comes up in the script, but my, my feeling was, um, she'd been in there for a few months and, um, and, and just, uh, just, no, I gotta go find my son and get him, you know, to safety. And, um, so it's like, well, why don't we have her breaking out while they're breaking in that that'll just kind of shorten everything, you know? And it gave us this wonderful opportunity to, to A, show how clever she had become over the years. You know, she gets out of her handcuffs and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It was all leading up to this one moment, which is Sarah's nightmare moment, where she's jogging down the hallway looking for a way to get out of there. And she sees Arnold walking up to her. And she does almost, you know, like the Warner Brothers cartoon thing where she's like slides to a stop and then starts backing away, you know. Like, oh, yeah. no, you know, and then John's like, no, 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 no. He's like, basically, he's with us. He's, he's a good guy, you know, and um, I think we had the opportunity. I'm pretty sure that line's in there uh, where we did the spin on the line from Terminator 1 where Kyle Reese says, come with me if you want to live. And Arnold, I think, says the same thing right back to her at that yeah. moment, reaches out and grabs her hand. And it was just like, well, there's a nice symmetry to that, you know. Um, but the, the, uh, uh, yeah, I remember, um, we're writing this and the, the Dr. Silberman character, the most obnoxious psychiatrist in the world, yeah. um, is talking to her and, and she, she's running around and she opens up a, she grabs a syringe and 
she opens up like a utility closet and there's some like Drano or something in there. And she fills a syringe up with it. And I, I, I do remember uh, that, that I thought that up. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, mostly, mostly it's just kind of like we, but, but in this one, I, I and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm only saying this because there's kind of a funny little punchline about it. So we're like, well, no, God, what could she find? You know? And, and I said, Oh yeah. Well, what if she takes a syringe and jabs it into this like Drano thing and then jabs it into Silberman's neck and says, you know, do exactly what I say or I'll hit the plunger. I remember Jim looking at me going like, you are one sick fuck. I love that. (laughs) 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 And, And we laughed. He's like, oh yeah, that's 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 great, you know, um, and uh, n- and now I don't remember how she ends up in the hallway with Arnold, but but uh, uh, she does, you know, and and that was another thing we put in there where where the T one thousand, you know, I told you where the floor rose up, you know, that yeah, the black yeah. and white floor rises up to the, um, and and it, it appears like uh, it's a CG shot with the. Two guards, identical guards. They're actually but twin, it's a twin brother. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We saved a lot of money on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but there's 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 a moment when um, uh, the team one thousand is just walking through some some like prison bars, okay, hmm. and he just kind of melts through them, okay, and and he's he's got a pistol. I think it's a nine millimeter Beretta. Um, LAPD issued kind of gun. And, um, and as he's walking through, I remember saying, you know, can we have it? Cause we wanted to reinforce the fact that the, the T 1000 cannot make, uh, he can make, he can make pointed weapons out of himself, but he can't make like gunpowder and, and shells and stuff like that. Right. So the gun's a real gun that he takes off yeah. the cop. And to reinforce that, I said, you know, when he's walking through there, can the gun for just a half a second kind of kind of hit the side of one of the bars, you know? And, and, uh, so we go, Oh, 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 that's actually not part of him. I remember Jim looking at me and he was saying, well, it doesn't make any sense because he, he would never let that happen. That gun would go smoothly between the two bars. He said, but it does reinforce the fact that it's not part of him. So let's do that, you know. Uh, so, so some things that really, if you think about it, doesn't necessarily make sense, but cinematically it, it, it reinforces something else that you feel is important, so you want to put it in there anyway. But it's interesting, Bill, after they help break Sarah out, help being the operative word there, because of course there's, there's, she's no damsel in distress anymore. She's in the midst of her own escape attempt when John and the Terminator happen upon her. That feels important to stress. So yeah, after that, the initial plan is to flee to Mexico, but then there's this U-turn. Sarah learns about Dyson, uh, the man who essentially is going to go on and create Skynet. She senses an opportunity to stop the future from happening. She decides to basically assassinate this guy at his house. Becoming in the process, the very thing that she spent the entire first film fleeing from, a Terminator. So um, yeah, Bill, Dyson is a super interesting character. It seems like a lot's being explored there. Some of the questions kind of quietly wrapped up in that guy. 
are questions that we're still asking today. I mean, in the wake of what we've seen politically recently, people are asking what responsibility tech entrepreneurs have the creations of theirs that turn destructive. So in real life, it's social media moguls right now. In your film, it's an artificial intelligence engineer. Can you tell me about Dyson and what it was you wanted that character to bring to the film? That's a really good question. Um, unlike the tech billionaires we have today, uh, Dyson uh, ha- had a real conscience and, uh, and an immense decency. Okay. Which, you know, personally, I think is way stronger than uh, Zuckerberg's or any of these other guys, you know. Uh, I think they're just looking to consolidate power for the sake of it. Dyson is a scientist. Um, he's also, but you can tell by looking at his house, he's quite wealthy. You know, we never say exactly how much, but um, he's not living in an apartment in Downey. You know, he's got this beautiful kind of high-tech house in this, in this lovely family. And he, what he thinks he's doing is something that will be good for the world. And um, he's one of my favorite characters in the movie. Uh, he's actually the closest thing to Jesus Christ in the movie. Um, um, and, and, and so when they explain to him, no, everything, your entire life's work that you thought was going in one direction is going to be used to destroy mankind. It doesn't take him more than like one second to go, let's destroy my entire life's work, shall we? Right? I mean, he doesn't say, no, 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 we can, well, what if I did this and we, we can make it not happen? He's like, no, nope, got to kill it all. Got to destroy it. You know, and, and he's so noble in my mind. And that's how mm-hmm. we wanted to ride him. And um, we intentionally wanted to uh, 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 cast an African-American um, simply because it's like, well, why couldn't an African-American be like the smartest guy on the planet? And then that's kind of how we had uh, uh, conceived of Dyson. You know, he's, he's, he's just really, really, really super smart guy. And I, an Einstein tech wizard in a way. Oh God, I'm awful with names. Uh, who, who's the actor that played him? Uh, uh, Joe Morton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was fantastic. And um, there, there's this the the scene where um, you know he shot up, and then Arnold shooting the police cars, and then they, they break in, and he's essentially got this kind of electronic plunger device, you know. Yeah. And and he's holding it. And he's dying and he knows he's dying. Okay. And as the cops are coming in, he says, he just said, I think of the line is he just says, I don't know how much longer I can hold this thing. And like basically get out of here now, you know? Um, and, and, um, uh, so not only does he destroy his life's work, he willingly sacrifices his own life in the process to save mankind. Yeah, I, I, he's just the most noble character in the film to me. I loved that guy. And you guys arrived at that quite quickly. There was never a version of this film in which Dyson didn't sacrifice himself. Dyson lived. No, no, there was never a version of that. He was, he was, um, we always knew that, that that's where it was going to go. 
that mm-hmm. that uh well because that's part of i mean it had to be that way uh, uh, otherwise otherwise a you open a whole other can of worms like does he go off with them does he does it but no the whole point was that was a closed loop um and intended to be and then the the notion that he would he would willingly sacrifice himself as well as destroy his own his entire life's work just i mean that was just so appealing from uh the standpoint of being a noble human being the most moral character in the entire film uh and um i think we were just in love with that from the beginning and kind of knew that that's how he was going to go out of course that's not the only moment of sacrifice that we'll see as the film begins to really hurtle towards its conclusion here. So first we have this nail-biting escape and this this chase sequence, the T-1000 pursuing Sarah and co in this low-flying helicopter over a freeway. They then crash into this molten steelworks. There's a punishing fight scene between the T-1000 and T-800. T-800 is seemingly defeated. There's then this deadly game of cat and mouse. As Sarah and John try to hide from the T-1000, the T-1000 is ultimately destroyed, the T-800 has come back to life to help save the day, after which the T-800 realises that the only way to make sure that the nuclear apocalypse is truly averted is for his microchip to be destroyed as well, which leads to this emotional, iconic moment, the thumbs up. So, Bill, we talked at the beginning about the emotional possibilities of this movie that you discovered as you guys wrote it, and how surprising that was for audiences following T1. Tell me where that now timeless image came from, the thumbs up. That sequence changed um, as we were working on it. And what I, what I initially wanted, uh, as we were talking it out, was that Arnold steps, you know, he, he has a bit where he goes, like, you know, I... I I got to die, essentially. So, um, uh, uh, and they and they all kind of very quickly realized that that yeah, he's got to go away. And um, I, I wanted to do something very simple, um, which is that he simply steps to the edge of that big vat of molten steel, and um, uh, Sarah and uh, John Connor are like you know, near him, beside him, behind him. And, uh, and Connor says, are you scared? And Arnold says, yes. And immediately jumps into the vat of steel. And I wanted to do that because it's like, let's make him like, let's just really reinforce what he's learned and that he's like damn near human now because he has an emotion. Mm. And and Jim didn't want to do that. He said that's too simple. Um, I want to make a bigger emotional moment out of it, you know. And he was probably right. And so what we ended up with is what you see in the film, you know, where he says, uh, "You're going to have to lower me, and I, I'm not allowed to self terminate." And and so it's the the moment is um, is is kind of stretched out, you know, to make it a bigger emotional thing. And I just wanted to have this very simple thing, where he's, Yes, I'm scared. Bang, off he goes, and um, um, uh, and so we ended up with what you what, with what you see now, um, which is a much you know uh, longer kind of emotional goodbye 
thing with a kid. And, um, uh, and there was another thing that we never did that I thought would be cool. Just again, as we were kicking ideas around early days is, is that, um, uh, so Arnold goes in and the thumbs up might've been a hangover from like, it, it's okay. It's okay. But that's what he's trying to tell the kid. It's okay. It's such a cool culmination of the relationship that we've seen blossom between those two. You've seeded it all the way through the movie and the thumbs up scene, yeah, to me was always just like the ultimate symbol of the way that John has imprinted some of his humanity upon this machine. I love that moment. Uh, the thumbs up scene, it is iconic. Hasta la vista, also iconic. These are moments that are now just part of our pop culture. Did you see that coming at all? I don't think you can ever know that. No. You, you you never know. You know. Hasta la vista just came out of when Jim and I would be on the phone. That's how we'd often hang up. Hasta, hasta la vista. And we just say it to each other <laughs> over the years. And so it just seemed like, like, I don't know, just part of our own language. So we just threw that in. The fact that it became, you know, this kind of cultural thing, uh, uh, in the zeitgeist, you know, uh, is, 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 you can never predict that. I, in fact, I actually believe if you sit down and try to write the coolest line in the world that you just know people are going to be repeating for 20, 30 years, you'll fail. <laughs> you know, because I, I don't think it works like that. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you just, it just, um, uh, people pick up on things, you know. And I mean, so, I mean, we knew it was a cool line because the, the kid had said it to him. So when he repeats it, there's fun in that. Right. Um, and, but like, did, did like in the first one, I'll be back. That's a throwaway line. You know, I don't, I don't think Jim or anybody ever thought that was going to become, you know, a thing. Uh, so I, I think those things are very, very, very hard to predict if not impossible. But it all does go to speak to how timeless this film is. I mean, yes, of course, like Guns N' Roses are on the soundtrack and a lot of the clothes and haircuts place it in the 90s, but there is something at the heart of this film that just feels as current today as it was then. What, what do you think it is about this story that you and James told with T2 that helps the movie remain so relevant 30 years on, Bill? Well, um, I think because it was, it was really, it was intended to be a cautionary tale about the misuse of technology and the weaponization of technology and, and the fact that Skynet is this sort of ultimate AI construct. Okay. And, um, I often joke with friends, you know, uh, they'll say, it's all your fault, Wisher, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, everything that's going on today. Right. And it was like, look, it was written as a cautionary tale, not a how-to video, okay? That's not, that was not the point. Um, and now you're seeing, you know, we were just on the very, very, very beginning conceptually of, of what is becoming very real today. And, and uh, both in uh, AI and in robotics, and weaponized robotics specifically. And, and, um, I, I think that because the film feels predictive because of that, as though, you know, we were onto something. And, and maybe we were, you know, cause you kind of look at the world that 
that's around you and you sort of imagine where it's going to go. And um, the stuff 30 years ago was like, there weren't even cell phones, I don't believe, or maybe very, very early ones. Um, uh, but, but uh, uh, you know, I don't believe there was an internet. Uh, didn't that happen a little later, a year or two later? Um, yeah, yeah. I think the internet started with DARPA. Maybe it was supposed to be a government thing, and anyway, then it went commercial and worldwide and all that. But the the where we're going today with um, these uh, in, information exchanging monopolies, you know, where they're gathering all this intelligence on you, the CIA and the NSA, uh, you know, not to mention the public uh, government partnerships between places like Google and, and Facebook and all of those stuff. They're collecting everything. They're collecting this. And it's all going to go, every keystroke you make on a computer, every phone call you make, every electronic thing you do is, is uh, captured and stored, uh, to the best of my knowledge, primarily in this, in this uh, ever-expanding NSA facility in Utah. But we're all being monitored, and now they're making robots that uh, you know um, will eventually become soldiers or cops, you know. And um, uh, what is it that, that place in Boston's working on um, some kind of mechanical dog? Yeah, that uh, yeah, yeah, and and you know, and the speed at which all that's going i mean terminators terminator terminator specifically is is a you know a, a killing unit we're not there so i hesitate to call them that but they're like you know pre-terminator robotics is happening mm. and at, at some point it's going to uh it's going to you know it's, it's going to become a thing in the, in the world it's going to go beyond labs and start being um, integrated into uh, militaries and police forces and stuff like that. How could it not be? I mean, why the hell else are they working on it? Mm. You know? And, and so I, I think that people are becoming more and more and more and more and more and more aware of all of these things, the collection gathering, the AI, the robotics. And so they'll look back on, on Terminator 2, especially, um, and, uh, yeah, it does seem prescient. Like we predicted all of this and, and I don't think that we were intentionally predicting it. <laughs> we were kind of hoping it wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> As you say, Bill, artificial intelligence is here now. And a lot of the anxieties that underpin those first two films, they're just part of the fabric of our world now, which is scary to think. Don't you think it's weird given that the Terminator franchise isn't firing on all cylinders the way that perhaps it could be. I mean, I don't know, I actually quite enjoyed the most recent film, but on the whole, a lot of these sequels post T2, they've either kind of not worked on a creative level or they've struggled to find an audience or both. Why do you think that is? Jim and I didn't work on them. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, and I didn't work on the last one either, even though Jim produced it. Um, 
a guy who's become a, a pretty good friend of mine, uh, Miller, directed it. And, yeah. Uh, um, uh, you, you, you know, part of it is, um, you know, Arnold and Linda are, are getting on in years now, you know. So I don't know how much longer, if at all, uh, if there's going to be like a Terminator 7. I have no idea if there will be. Mm. Um, I, I don't know that they can continue to be part of it because uh, uh, they're just, you know, none of us are kids anymore. And Arnold is now in his early 70s. So, um, um, yeah, I rather like the last one too that Tim Miller uh, did. And, um, and, I, and I liked that given... You know that 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 Linda Hamilton is about sixty, and Arnold was probably about seventy, seventy one when he did it. That they made smart choices. You know, I mean, where would she be today? You know, she'd be a tequila swigging, you know, badass grandma. You know, running around hunting <laughs> Terminators and trying to kill them. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's Sarah. You know. Uh, and then I, I love what they did with Arnold. He'd been here long enough that uh, he was uh, had become very human in a way, like almost autistic, sorta, kinda. Um, but but uh, um, had had learned a lot, you know, in the intervening years, and sort of adopted a family and and, and all of that stuff. I thought those were all smart choices to make. But mm -hmm. I, I think moving forward. Um, you know, uh, to capture audiences worldwide and all of that, and whenever, uh, whenever theaters reopen, uh, whenever yeah. that will be. Um, but for the moment, everything is streaming, so which is fine. You know, everyone's got a sixty-inch flat screen. It seems like so. You know, <laughs> uh, they'll still look good. But, but, um, yeah, they may, they may, I don't know what they're going to do. You know, they, they may decide to, I think Jim had in mind, you know, with, with the, 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 the new characters, uh, that, um, you know, I mean, as a producer with the new characters in the, in the latest one of kind of rebooting the franchise, but not, but also trying to play out Linda and Arnold at the same time and then kind of pass the baton, you know to the newer, younger characters. So we'll see. I don't know what they're going to do with it, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but, uh, uh, or if it will happen. I don't know. But they probably need to. They probably need to uh, um, sort of reimagine uh, where it will go from there. Yeah, I guess it just goes to show the um, lightning in a bottle that you guys captured with T2. It's not easy to replicate, obviously. Bill, we're running out of time but the 30th anniversary is right around the corner. What do you say to people who three decades on still hold this film so dearly? They still find humor in it. They still find horror in it. They still find humanity in it. What's your message to fans? <laughs> um, give it another look if you've already seen it. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. And just know that this is before it all began. And we were trying to tell people, don't let this happen. And here we are today, and it's starting to be made real. So if you want to see, you know, 
the first SOS that was thrown out there. Look at T2. (laughs) (laughs) Well put. Well, Bill, this has been such a joy. I really appreciate you coming on Script Apart. I guess there's nothing left to say, but thank you and hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.